I'm glad to know that Twerp Week is still a deal. When I was a student at LCU in the mid-90s, I got a wife out of it. No pressure on you. You don't need to feel like you need to get a spouse out of it. But I had zero confidence with girls. And so I didn't ask many girls out. And this girl asked me out to, on a twerp date to go to Coca Nacho. I'm glad to see Coca Nacho's making a comeback. And right before Coca Nacho, she called me and told me that she had found a better option. And so I was dumped right before Coca Nacho. I decided to go to Coca Nacho anyway. And there was my future wife with four of her friends. They had all come together as a group, and they didn't have dates. And I decided I was going for it. And I sat right in the middle of them and told this sad story about how I had just been dumped. And I thought, surely I can get a date out of this story. And my wife asked me out. She did what I didn't have the courage to do. And then... uh, We're married, been married for 26 years. It's been wonderful. I like to think that that first girl often wonders what she let get away. But I'm so glad she let me go. I got the greatest wife in the world. I don't know who said amen, but somebody who knows Amy. So a couple of times this semester already, we've had students get up and address the question, why do I believe? Why do I believe? If, if you are a person of faith, why do you believe that there is a God? Why do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God if you believe these things? It's a really great question for you to consider. And both of our Bible majors who address that question, Carson Holt and Paige Schneider, um, admitted to me that it is a, it's a hard question, even for those who've been around faith a long time. It's really hard sometimes to nail down at its root, why do you believe? And as I've said the last couple of times in introducing this, the truth is that any one of us who has faith has faith for a number of reasons. There, there isn't just one reason, and these things come together in all kinds of various ways. So, Carson, Carson and Paige address this primarily from what I would call experiential reasons, that they've had experiences that have led them to believe that the existence of God is more likely than not, or, or a deep, firm conviction from within that leads them to some sort of assurance about God and about Christ. And I've had those experiences, too. I want to tell you, I I know what it's like to go outside in the mountains and look at the stars and have an overwhelming sense of God's reality and presence. I know what it's like to, to exist in wonderful relationships in a church family and to see an outpouring of sacrificial love or the way that people care for each other and you just have a sense of God's presence there. I know what it's like to open the scriptures and sometimes feel nothing, but at other times to be encountered in a very powerful way by the presence of God. And those experiences are real. Um, the, the great philosopher Blaise Pascal said, The heart has its reasons which reason does not know. 
And so, in a way, those, re- those, those experiences have their own kind of reasonableness to them. But if I'm being honest with you, as the dean of the College of Biblical Studies, experiences can cut both ways, can't they? Some of you have come from really hard experiences. Some of you have endured uh, various kinds of abuse or anxiety, and you've had experiences that have made it very difficult, if not seemingly impossible for you, to believe that a good God could exist. Or we hear stories like Warren just prayed about, the golf team that was tragically killed, or we're seeing the unbelievable tragedy unfolding in Ukraine. All of this comes, comes under the heading of what's classic, classically been called the problem of evil. How do you reconcile the existence of evil in this world with an all-powerful and all-good, the existence of an all-powerful and all-good deity? And I'll be honest with you, that's one of the greatest challenges to me to Christian faith. I don't think it's an insurmountable challenge, or I wouldn't still be a Christian. And I think we've got lots of great resources in the Christian tradition to help us think through those things. But the problem of evil is one of those things that sometimes makes unbelief possible for us or introduces doubt. Um, Sometimes it is something like just the content of Christian faith, like the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, that Three somehow equals one. I know that doesn't work in math land. I've got some math professors down here. Three, I don't think three equals one. I'm sure you, you would tell me there's some sort of special math in which it does. But in theology land, we, the, the Christian faith as it's unfolded, the emergence of Christ into the world has led Christians to speak of God as being Father, Son, and Spirit. Three, and yet one God. That's really hard. We had a couple of sisters on our campus years ago when I first started teaching. They were Muslim. They were from the Middle East. Here they were plopped down into, into West Texas and in intro to Old Testament with me. And I formed a friendship with them, and they wanted to know more about the Christian faith, and I wanted to know more about their faith. So one day a week we would meet in the middle of the campus and talk about our faith. And the thing they really wanted to know about was the Trinity. And I had just come back from graduate school, so I knew all the answers to that. And I'm talking about it one day, and as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, man, this sounds stupid. Do I believe this? Right before I left graduate school, I was tucking my daughter into bed one night. Some of you may know Anna Carey here. She may not want to be associated with me, but I'm owning her publicly. She was about four years old, and I'm tucking her into bed, and we're going to pray. And she says, Daddy, before I tell you the story, you got to know, I was in the middle of a doctoral seminar on the 4th century Trinitarian debates. The 4th the century is when a lot of this language of the doctrine of the Trinity was, was congealed, one of the most confusing centuries in Christian history. So I'm in the middle of all of this. She says, Daddy, we pray to God, right? I said, yeah. We pray to Jesus, right? I said, yeah. She paused and she said, so two gods. As I was thinking about how to answer her, I was just staring at her, thinking, oh, no. My wife walks by, the one I got from Coconacho. She walks by, 
And she says, that's right, dear. And I said, no, that's not right. We don't have two gods. She says, can I see you in the hall, please? I go out in the hall. She says, Jeff, she's trying to work this out. This is just, don't, don't get on to her. Don't give her a big lecture about 4th century Trinitarian theology. I was making a big mess of it. My four-year-old daughter was undoing me. I was a student in theology. And I, and I didn't even have the words to talk about this. Sometimes Christian content itself can be so hard that you start thinking, do I really believe this stuff? Or maybe you've had an experience where you have witnessed the lives of Christians, Christians, supposed Christians, and you think, no thanks. In spite of all of that, I find that experiences in my life have led me to believe in the midst of and in the face of all of that. But those experiences that I have that are in here are unavailable to you. You don't have direct access to what's going on in here. And in here, there's still very powerful reasons for me for why I believe. And sometimes those experiences run dry for me. Where I don't feel God as much. I don't have those powerful experiences that continue to assure me of God's existence. And in those times, I find myself reaching for more objective type reasons. More concrete reasons. Like, I find persuasive some of the philosophical arguments for the existence of God that Christians have developed through the centuries. Those are more objective things out here that we can all inspect together. Probably the one that I come back to the most when I'm struggling with, do I believe any of this? And it's, it's certainly not unique to me. It's one of the most common, uh, commonly stated reasons for Christian faith. That is, to, that is this. That the earliest followers of Jesus, the ones who were closest to him, were willing to die. Not for the claim that God exists. Not even for the claim that Jesus was a good guy or awesome or a great teacher. They were willing to die for this claim. That Jesus Christ, a Jewish rabbi, was crucified as a criminal by the Roman Empire, was buried, and on the third day he rose again, and they claim to have witnessed it. That is something that I come to as an anchor point over and over when I doubt. And here's why. The gospel narratives, which emerge early in the Christian tradition, have these Disciples of Jesus, in his greatest moment of trial, where are they? They've run away. Something happens to convince those disciples, all of them except for Judas, the betrayer, something happens that convinces all of those to return. Not just to return to Jesus, but to be willing to die for Jesus. Horrific deaths. Very credible, strong tradition has it that at least four of those apostles died martyrs deaths probably a good number more but we can we can have uh, as, as accurately as you can know anything in history we have pretty great historical evidence for at least four of those dying and then you think about the apostle paul who wrote so much of our new testament in letters this guy he was a jew among jews he was a jewish rabbi he was he was like the harvard level of jewish rabbi 
And he throws it all away in order to declare this gospel about Jesus. And before he threw it away, he was actually persecuting those who were following Jesus. Now, how do you explain that this guy who was persecuting Jesus, who was not crazy, read his letters, crazy man doesn't write letters like that. He's not crazy. How do you explain that he dumps all of that and now is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus? Well, what he tells you happens is that he's on the road to Damascus one day and the living Lord Jesus knocks him off his feet and he encounters the risen Christ. So listen to these words from Philippians where he's bragging a little bit about how big a deal he was before he became a Christ follower. If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Good Jewish boy, even though I didn't have a choice. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law. I was a Pharisee as to zeal. I persecuted the church as to righteousness under the law. Blameless. He had all the credentials and he was at the top. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I regard them as rubbish, trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead, he reports the the Bible reports him undergoing stonings and beatings and prison. Why would the apostle Paul trade all that he had accomplished in for all of that? It's unreasonable. He has nothing to gain from it. Now, just because someone dies for something doesn't make it true. We we all know people have died for some crazy causes. But what's especially compelling to me about this is that you've got multiple eyewitnesses of of the resurrection, people who claim to have seen Christ, and they're they're willing to throw their whole life away, Family, family relationships, and endure horrific deaths for the name of Christ. Now, that's not proof, but it makes faith more reasonable to me. And I want you to know this. The Christian faith is not blind faith. When I sum all of this up, all the reasons for my faith, I walk away thinking it is more likely than not that there is a good and gracious God, that Jesus Christ is his son, that he was raised from the dead, that he is reigning at the right hand of God, and that all things will be made right in the end through Christ. That is my firm conviction. It's not that I don't ever have moments of doubt. It's not that I don't have questions. But I look for these anchor points in my life when I do have doubt. And this is one of them. Just one. I pray that something that I have said today or that Carson has said or that Paige has said has either made faith, um, has has opened some new avenues for faith in you, or perhaps has made faith thinkable again for you. 
May God bless all of these words that have been spoken. May God bless you. Have a great day. You're dismissed.